Support for Alabama Aloud comes from Ernest and Hadley booksellers of Tuscaloosa, Alabama, who strive to provide a unique selection of new, used, and rare books from local, regional, and international sources. Information about online orders at ernestandhadleybooks.com. From Troy Public Radio, this is Alabama Aloud. I'm Don Noble. Alabama Aloud is the only podcast where you can hear Alabama stories read in their entirety. Today I'll be reading two stories, A Full Boat by Daniel Wallace and Just Like Television by Tom Gossam Jr. Daniel Wallace was raised in Cullman and Mountain Brook. A member of the Alabama Writers Hall of Fame, he is the author of six novels, the best known of which is Big Fish, which has been made into a feature film and a Broadway musical. The story, A Full Boat, was first published in the collection Stories from the Blue Moon Cafe, Volume 4, and is used here by permission of the author. I'll never forget the day that tree fell on my father, crushing him like a fly beneath its massive trunk. We were sitting on a park bench together, on a beautiful, albeit windy, afternoon. My father dried and withered, hopeless in a pleasant way, but bitter, very, very bitter. I have nothing, he said, nothing but unbridled contempt for the two-legged jokers who promenade about as if walking were something anybody could do. He spit the thin, dry spit of an old man. A pigeon examined it, balked, and flew away. Yes, the wooden leg suits me, he went on, nodding, agreeing with this assessment of himself. In some ways, it's proven to be a great asset. If nothing else, it can certainly start a conversation and he gave me the raised eyebrow look, his facial exclamation mark. But I just can't walk around all la-di-da like these jokers. He nodded toward the innocent people who had chosen this bright, clear, cool day for an outing in the park. I suppose it would be accurate to say that I perambulate, and in that way they are no different from me. But I don't so much walk as limp, he said. Limp and drag, limp and drag. That's true, I said, and I might have added that the sound was quite horrific to me, waking up in the middle of the night and hearing it in the hallway, coming closer and closer to my own room. Limp, drag, limp, drag. Over and over, I had to keep repeating to myself, it's my father out there. It's only my father. He leaned in toward me a bit. I appreciate it, of course how you accommodate me in that way, limping the way you do. I really appreciate it. It's not a problem. Can you walk, I mean, in a way that's regarded as normal? Yes, I can. He nodded. Good, good. You're versatile. You can limp. You can not limp. It's up to you. Me, I have no choice. But it would seem my handicap is either completely ignored or I'm made a figure of fun. People... They don't know what it's like. This seemed to make him feel good for a moment, but the moment passed. Too true, he said. Those jokers don't know a thing. 
Were they to open their eyes for but a second and look this way, they would see a man with a wooden leg. That last part he spoke quite loudly. People opened their eyes and looked. I felt sorry for the small, elderly African-American lady who had the misfortune of being the closest joker to us at that time. "'What are you looking at?' he said. She turned away. "'No, please, gawk. Your eyes do not deceive you, madam. I am a man with a wooden leg. I hope the sight of me enlivens your otherwise predictable, boring life.' She moved on. He watched her derisively until she disappeared around a bend in the pebbled path. "'What a sad person,' he said. "'She has no idea how lucky she is. She must have had those legs her entire life. And yet, no doubt, given the opportunity, she would regale us with stories of hardship and discrimination. But I'll tell you something, and it's the truth. I would rather be black than have just one leg. I'm dead serious.' I would give up my natural skin color if it would mean I had my leg back. Doesn't that tell you something? It does, I said. What? What does that tell you? That you're a racist? No. Well, then, I would say, what it tells me is that you would do almost anything to get your leg back. Oh, no, he cried. You're not going to get me with that one. Which one, Dad? The one where you give me a wish and I get my leg back but it's 50 years old and rotted through and smells bad. I've been around the block, son. Don't try that with me. But if I could get a brand new, healthy, strong, nicely proportioned leg, well fitted on my body, the whole nine yards, well, then, yes, I would happily become an African-American. I tried to imagine my father as a black man. I looked at him and he looked at me. I've always liked you, he said. I hope you know that. I'm your son, Dad. Even so, he said. We sat there for a while longer, watching the people, the pigeons, thinking our own private thoughts. Inevitably, this was where we found ourselves, exploring the dark and confidential corners of our lives in silence. He was a man of few words when I was growing up. We ate our meals in a solemn quietude, and an entire evening might pass before he said anything at all. Usually, good night. Sometimes there was music. He liked to hum. But no conversation. What are words, he told me once, after I curiously questioned his affinity for absolute silence, but a random combination of letters resulting in a recognizable sound. And what are letters, but a meaningless scrawl of circles and lines? When I was six, I had no idea what this meant. But now I think this meant... He thought language was an invention, a product like any other. And just because it was a common and accepted thing to speak to other people, it didn't mean he had to do it himself. He was a kind man, a good man. He just didn't have much to say. This changed, of course, when he became old. All the words he had denied in his young life began pouring out of him like water from a broken pipe. When he was old, there was really nothing he wouldn't say to anybody, and I looked back fondly on the silent years. "'You know how I lost it, don't you?' he said. "'Lost what?' "'The leg,' he said. "'The leg, damn it!' I thought about it. "'I remember something about a whale,' I said. He shook his head. "'That was just a story. The truth is, I lost it in a card game.' "'A card game?' 
a very high-stakes card game, he said. I feel like an utter fool now, of course, as I have every day since, but at the time, I thought there was no way I could lose. You bet your leg in a card game? You wouldn't understand, he said. It was a different time, a time where men were men, and cards were cards, and men played card games for keeps. Most of my friends had lost some body part or other, an eye, an ear, a couple of fingers more often than not. One of the people we played with, he was a doctor, performed the surgery then and there. He rubbed the joint, the place where his flesh and blood leg ended and his wooden one began. It was a bit like a pool cue. He could unscrew it when he wanted. He usually unscrewed it right before bed. But if there was some household chore that needed doing and he didn't want to do it, he'd unscrew it then as well. It was a painful procedure, but you knew that going in. Don't bet your leg if you're not prepared to lose it. That's something I've tried to teach you. He looked at my legs. And in that respect, at least, it looks like I've been successful. I don't think it would ever have occurred to me under any circumstances to bet a part of my body in a card game. He looked at me, misty-eyed. That's something a father longs to hear, he said. Thank you, son. You're welcome. My father, hell, he didn't care whether I had my legs or not. Sad as that is. He never thought to tell me one way or another what I should or shouldn't bet. When the moment came, I wasn't prepared and I bet the leg. He reached into his back pocket and removed his wallet. He opened it up and showed me an old, dog-eared, black-and-white picture of himself dressed as a sailor, smiling, his arm around a girl whose laughter it seemed I could almost hear. Women were happier back then. I didn't know you were in the Navy, I said. I wasn't, he said, but it was a good look for me, and the women, they loved it. That's not why I'm showing you this, however. I'm showing this to you because it's the last picture taken with me in it. All of me, I mean. Look at that smile. So hopeful, full of life. That young man didn't know that in less than two days he'd lose his right leg to a guy with three jacks and two tens. A full boat. He settled into the bench as his mind seemed to be taking a stroll back in time. His eyes had that vacancy sign. Even when he talked, it wasn't like him talking. It was the voice of a ghost of the man he used to be, reporting the past to the present. It was Saturday night, of course, 2 a.m. Everyone was smoking cigars, and the room was so smoky it was like playing cards in the clouds. We'd been at it for the last four hours or so, and let me tell you, son, I was on a roll. I couldn't lose. It didn't matter what I played. I won a $100 pot with a pair of threes. People couldn't read me. I bluffed like hell. By midnight, I was up $750. I thought about leaving and taking my winnings and buying something special for myself. A new wallet, a nice bottle of scotch, a warm pair of socks. But with things going so well, I thought they could only get better. I decided to quit when I hit a 1000 I won the next hand. Montana low hole, roll your own. That brought me up to 875. I lost the next, but won the next two. Grand total, 962 American dollars. One more hand, 
and that was it. I was out of there. The dealer, winking, chose my favorite game, seven-card stud. This is the game I was born to play, son. It was like magic with me, and everybody knew it. I figured I didn't even have to look at my cards to win this one. But I looked. I was confident. I thought it was my lucky day. And everybody folded, except for one man. DeSoto Moriarty, we called him. Why'd you call him that? Because that was his name. DeSoto knew how to play a hand of cards. We kept at it, raising each other until we'd gone through all our money. I tried to call, but he would have none of it. Chicken, he said, if you really had something there, you'd be willing to bet more than money. Me, for instance, I know I got you beat. That's why I'm betting my thumbs, both of them. I didn't blink. I could tell he was just trying to scare me. Name the leg, I said, right or left. He smiled. Right. And we showed our cards. And that's all she wrote. I lost my leg. He paused. A full boat beats two pair any day of the week. I looked at him. You bet your leg on two pair? I was young, he said, reckless. But I still don't understand, I said. What did he want with your leg? What did he do with it once he had it? My father shook his head. That was his business. After the doctor cauterized the wound, I said goodbye to the leg, and I never spoke to it again. It was DeSoto's now. He took it with him everywhere. That's why I eventually stopped playing cards with those guys. I couldn't stand the smug smile on his face and the way he rested his hand on my kneecap. His eyes began to glow with an old man's sadness. He sighed. A salamander can regenerate his legs, he said. A newt. Sometimes, sometimes you wish you were a newt. That's right, he said. Sometimes I do. We sat there a moment. I was 33 years old on that day. My father was 87. I had known him all of my life, and I had never heard this story or imagined that he'd ever lived through such a macabre experience. It just goes to show you, I guess, something. What a story, I said. On the one hand, you were stupid to even be there, but on the other hand, you were kind of brave. I would never play in a game like that. The stakes are too high. He looked at me. It works both ways, though, doesn't it? You can either lose big, or you can win big. Losing is the worst. But winning, there's nothing like it. And he stared at me then for as long a time as I ever remember him staring at me in all our lives, taking in the details, the parts that made me real, as though he had never seen me before. Winning, I said. Winning what? He smiled, his eyes shining in wonder. How do you think, you and me, you don't know? Know what? Ever wonder why you never met your mother? Of course I've wondered. Why didn't I ever meet her? Because neither did I, son, he said. Four aces, king high, the best hand I ever had. Are you telling me I never told you that story? Your story? And that's when the tree fell. A big, towering, ancient oak, rotting from the inside, hanging on by its tenacious roots, teetering there for who knows how long. A crosswind hit it just so, and before either of us could move, limp or drag, the man I called my father, 
tiny already, shrunken by age, had disappeared beneath it in a bloodless moment of finality, crushed. But, save for a jagged branch scrape across the cheek, I was left unharmed, completely. I guess it was my lucky day. The story, A Full Boat, was first published in the collection Stories from the Blue Moon Cafe, Volume 4, and is used here by permission of the author. Tom Gossam Jr. was raised in Birmingham and then went on to play football at Auburn and to become the first African-American athlete to graduate from that school. He told the story of that part of his life in the memoir, Walk On, My Reluctant Journey to Integration at Auburn University. Gossam worked as an actor for many years with a recurring role in In the Heat of the Night, then turned to writing fiction. Just Like Television by Tom Gossam Jr. was published in his 2015 collection, A Slice of Life. I'll go first, Buck instructed. Then, Chris, come in. Tyrone, you hang around outside near the door. Don't cause no suspicion now. Got it? Buck from the driver's seat stared at Tyrone in the rearview mirror. Chris from the passenger seat waited for Tyrone's answer. Tyrone nodded, but without conviction. Quiet and darkness set in inside the car as Buck settled the blue Camaro onto the exit ramp of the freeway. They began their descent into the city. Tyrone's full stomach felt queasy. Buck had insisted they eat on the way to the job. They stopped at Church's Chicken on Martin Luther King Boulevard, got a family box of greasy chicken, dinner rolls, corn on the cob, and ate it in the parking lot of the fast food restaurant. Tyrone ate a wing and couldn't eat any more. He had no appetite. Buck devoured the drumsticks, breasts, two ears of corn, two dinner rolls, sucked down a 24-ounce strawberry soda, and belched a sinful, nasty, loud, vulgar belch then said, let's do this. They rolled toward the western side of town. Anticipation gripped Tyrone in the darkness of the back seat. His chest was tight, his throat dry. His six-foot-one frame hardly fit into the tight back seat of the car. He slumped and bent his head forward to find some comfort for his long legs. Tyrone's long legs had carried him to the 400-meter state finals in high school. Little Horse, they called him. He finished second, but no scholarship offers came his way. He had no money for further education. I've been to this store many times before, the thought drifted across Tyrone's brain. The car hit a bump in the worn road. The coldness of the blue steel in Tyrone's pants touched his skin. This ride to the store was different. He knew it. He removed the gun from inside his pants and placed it on the seat, pointing it away from himself and toward Buck. Tyrone had tried to get his old high school buddy Goose to come along. He begged Goose, but Goose begged off. Ain't going to jail, Jack, 
Goose responded. Approaching the destination, Tyrone could see the blinking lights of 7-Eleven. The city streets were naked, with the exception of an old fat bag lady wobbling her way home from the bus stop and a day of scrubbing, cleaning, and caring for someone else's home and children. She walked as though her feet hurt, and her next step would be her last. A step, a wobble. She would shift her weight, then take another step. Another wobble. Tyrone thought, everyone has to make a living. Buck had instructed that they all wear black windbreakers and a black cap, just like he'd seen the bad guys do on CSI New York, his favorite show. Zip up, Buck commanded. Sweat beads gathered on Tyrone's forehead. Even though it was a warm night, cold chills crept into his bones. Was this the dumbest thing he'd ever done? How could he get out of it? Was he scared of Buck? He was damn sure afraid of Chris. What about his family? He'd married Pam two weeks ago. It felt good to marry the mama of his two-year-old son. He promised to get a job and help her with the bills. A good woman. Pam worked as a nurse. She was smart with money. She and Tyrone had dated since high school. She had gotten pregnant their senior year. He thought of his son, Little man, they called him. Tyrone had been so proud the day he was born. He'd held him so close those first few days. He'd vowed to do right by his son. He tried. He drove cabs. He did day labor. He'd landed a career opportunity loading trucks with UPS. Thirty days later, they fired Tyrone for a positive marijuana test. He hadn't worked in a year. Desperate. He tried to make nice with his father long enough to get his rent covered. Daddy said, no way. When I tried to help you, you didn't want it. His father had arranged a job for Tyrone in the steel plant, where he'd worked for 40 years, but Tyrone turned it down. I ain't working in no plant, he emphatically told his father the last time they had talked. Buck's gruff voice interrupted Tyrone's thoughts. Get ready. Buck, at 19, was a convicted felon and a violent veteran criminal. He slowed to make the right turn into the parking lot and then suddenly accelerated and passed his mark. No one said anything. Tyrone breathed a little easier. Both Tyrone and Chris had faith in Buck. Tyrone thought, Buck's the man. He knows what he's doing. Buck circled the block, making sure there were no cops around. He came back and made his turn. The lot was vacant. The store was empty of customers. Chris reached over and killed the radio. Buck pulled the Camaro next to the rectangular building with flashing neon lights. Only the old man was inside, just as Buck had figured and Tyrone had said. Tyrone hit the illuminating dial on the watch Pam had given him. 10.49. Buck turned, checked his piece of big, cold blue steel, and demanded... Everybody be cool. It'll be over in three minutes. Don't be a fool. Buck opened the door, slid from under the wheel, and made his way around the car. He shoved the gun into the back of his pants, just like criminals did on television. Chris followed. He shoved his gun down into the back of his pants, just like Buck. Tyrone lingered for a few precious seconds. He'd begun to sweat, 
and beads of water trickled down his forehead, into his eyes. He thought about running. Just running. Maybe running track again. When he was running track, it had been the happiest time of his life. Damn, he murmured. The night air was thick, the heat a forewarning of trouble. Water beaded up on Tyrone's forehead and ran from under his arms. Like Buck and Chris, Tyrone tucked the gun into the back of his pants. He started for the door about the time he figured Buck and Chris were inside. Tyrone was the lookout. He was afraid, afraid to go through with it and afraid to leave. Tyrone could see the old man, Mr. Perkins. He knew Mr. Perkins through his grandfather, who also worked at this store. Tyrone had casually mentioned that his grandfather, his father's father, worked at a 7-Eleven, and Buck had taken it from there. Tyrone had protested, but Buck reasoned it was all the way across town and their heads would be covered. No one would get hurt. He swore it would be a piece of cake. Tyrone stood his ground and insisted the job be done when his grandfather was not working. Tyrone peeked inside the store. He did not want Mr. Perkins to see him. Mr. Perkins had retired from his job in the factory. His wife had died five years before. He worked in the 7-Eleven to make a few bucks and get out of the house. Tyrone's grandfather had recommended him to the owner who hired him. Mr. Perkins stood slightly slumped, and his hair grew in gray patches throughout his head. His customers loved him and his pleasant disposition. He, in turn, enjoyed his interaction with his customers. Looking through the glass, Tyrone lost his focus. Mr. Perkins reminded him of his grandfather. He pictured his grandfather standing behind the counter with Buck and Chris in the store. What would he do? Tyrone snapped out of it, made it to his position. Buck, Chris, and Mr. Perkins were the only ones in the store. Things were moving smoothly. No problems. Mr. Perkins did not see him. Suddenly, without warning, the old man's eyes came alive, registering danger. He'd spotted the piece in the waistband of Chris's pants as Chris bent over pretending to look for some Oreo cookies. In a split second, Mr. Perkins, a kind, lovable older man, went under the counter for his piece, a Charter Arms Undercover 38 Special. Instantly, Buck, a veteran crook and felon with no dreams and no future, at 19 years old, went for his automatic, shouting, He got a gun! Chris, having spent a few years in juvenile detention and having enthusiastically watched too many Criminal Minds episodes, dove spread-eagle behind the row of cookies. Tyrone, paralyzed, watched it all unfold. He could not flee, nor could he help. The old man fired the thirty-eight special twice in Buck's direction. Bam! Bam! Buck, kneeling, gun pointed sideways like he'd seen in the new rap video, fired multiple rounds. Pop! 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 It was surreal to Tyrone. It looked like television. The images were so vivid. The old man shooting. Buck behind the potato chip counter and Chris lying prone on the floor, firing like a marksman. Tyrone thought about his own gun. The thought made him sick. This wasn't television. It was for real. 
his nervous stomach threw up the church's chicken wing. In the next instant, fate slammed the door on all four lives. Buck rose, his gun sideways, and fired multiple times. The bullets caught Mr. Perkins full in the chest like target practice. Tyrone saw blood gush and squirt through the gray flannel work shirt. It wasn't like television at all. It wasn't surreal. It was real, bloody, and scary as hell. Bullets tore away at Mr. Perkins' flesh. Little pieces of his body flew in different directions. Mr. Perkins screamed out with the pain, became limp, and fell against the cash register, violently bumping his head. He hit the floor, lifeless. It was time to go. Tyrone's legs started moving. He pulled his gun, threw it toward the dumpster in the parking lot, and broke for the freeway. His stride was long and casual, but his heart and mind were frantic. He replayed the picture in his mind, Mr. Perkins' flesh being ripped open by the penetrating bullets. He tried blocking it, but the pictures kept coming. Sweat poured in currents from his body. Tyrone ran. Running felt good. Running restored order to his world. He could control running. He started to relax. Running, he was able to think. He didn't know if Mr. Perkins was dead or not. Yes, he did. He knew Mr. Perkins was dead. Damn. He didn't look back for Buck and Chris. He never had to see them again, and it would be okay. He would never do this again. This had been stupid. He thought of Pam and Little Man. He was running to them. I'm on my way, honey. Hey, Little Man, Daddy is on his way home. His thoughts raced along with him. Maybe I'll call Daddy and get the job in the plant, he thought. Oh, God, I hope so. Somehow he ran up the entrance ramp to the freeway. Cars whizzed by. The thought of thumbing a ride entered his mind and exited just as fast. He continued running, his long strides now growing shorter, his breaths coming in fevered pants. He was no longer in running shape. He never looked back. He didn't stop running. He never again wanted to stop running. Never again. Sirens whistled in the distance, and he knew cops must be on the scene. Never losing stride, he hit the watch dial. 11 p.m., it was time for his grandfather's shift to start. Was his grandfather there? Would he find out? Would his dad? Tired, exhausted, and run out, he wanted to quit running. He couldn't go anymore. He wanted to stop. He wanted to be in the little one-bedroom apartment with Pam and Little Man. He wanted the three of them to cuddle up in the bed his father had given him. He wanted to be home. Gradually, he slowed. Cars zipped by. He didn't look backward or to the side. He only wanted to look straight ahead. He stopped running. He didn't see or hear the Camaro pull up behind him. He didn't hear the horn blow. When he heard his name called, it startled him. He turned. Buck pulled the Camaro next to him and commanded, Get in. Just Like Television, by Tom Gossam, Jr., was published in his 2015 collection, A Slice of Life, 
and is used here by permission of the author. We hope you don't keep Alabama Aloud all to yourself. Subscribe to our podcast and share it with a friend. Better yet, write us a review in the iTunes store. It helps other people find the podcast. Also, give us a shout out on social media. Alabama Aloud is a production of Troy Public Radio and produced by Austin Toy and Kyle Gassett. Special thanks to Matt Clower, Buddy Johnson, and Michelle Mowry. So, until next time, when you'll hear more of Alabama Read Aloud, I'm Don Noble. Thanks for listening.